Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name's Christian. I'm the fun one, Aaron. My name's Justin. Uh, I introduced myself as the fun one last week, and I just feel like we should have some brand continuity. Oh, good. So it's my turn next week, then? Oh, man, I was just going to choose a different, like, moniker every time we introduce ourselves, but I guess that 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 one's already been taken. Well, Justin has dibs on fun one next week, so. Cool. I'll find something else. I'm still the pretty one. Fair. I'll try and get more creative next week. Oh, you admitted it. Thank you. I can't believe you just said that to him. <laughs> I was more just trying to get him to stop talking. We have talking. a fantastic episode for you this week. Uh, we'll be introduced, uh, interviewing uh, Liz Sedoti. She started her career as a journalist for the Associated Press, covering the 2004 and 2008 political campaigns, then moving over to covering uh, the White House, the Daily Press Briefing, uh, and finally ended up as the head of U.S. communications for BP, uh, which is a fascinating career track, uh, I think, for all of us. You know, It touches on a lot of different uh, ways in which our society interacts with politics in the political realm. Uh, so I think we're, we're excited to have that great conversation. Yeah, but, she knows more than us. That's basically the, the summary of this entire podcast. <laughs> Before we get into it, uh, as always, follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, etc. Subscribe um, also on iTunes uh, and to our MailChimp listserv. And as always, share with your friends, you know, let them know why you love flying the wall, what it means to you, how important it is to your life, all that fun stuff. The you holidays know. are coming up soon, too. It's October. <laughs> you know, you're home for Thanksgiving. You're like, you know, what have you been learning at school, Georgetown student? Well, mom or dad, I've actually been listening to a lot of really cool podcasts by my fellow peers, Christian, Aaron, and Justin, who have an awesome podcast called Fly on the Wall. And they'll be like, what? You, you listen to cool f- podcasts? You and- have friends? <laughs> And you can be like, oh, my God, I totally do. Check out this podcast. And that's how we get more listeners. That's how we start our global empire. Yep, that's the goal. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so our tweet of the week this week, because we know this is your favorite segment, uh, comes to us from Public Policy Polling at PPP Polls on Twitter. Um, and it's actually a quote tweet, which is fun. So uh, I'm going to read you the tweet that they quote tweeted first. So it's from, I don't know, someone who's not that important, <laughs> that said, funny, I wasn't asked in the poll, referencing this poll, I have no problem with the name Rocket Man, another poll run by Snowflakes. Public policy polling quote tweets and says, well, Aaron, if you weren't polled, I guess we can just throw it in the trash. <laughs> Absolute <laughs> savagery coming from public policy calling polling. We appreciate that. Just as a disclaimer, that wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't. That initial tweet. It Although, would make it a lot funnier if it was. Though. <laughs> he's got a great name. Can't fault him for that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're just moving past that. <laughs> like, I'm just thinking back to, like, Cornell Belcher when we had that uh, pollster on the pod. Like, yeah, he had some attitude. He had, he had some spunk. I he like. Did. I like, feel like there's there's a certain thing about pollsters where they're, like, a little behind the scenes. And they just, like, <laughs> they kind of just put out the facts. And so it's, like, what can you really say to pollsters? But they have, like, a lot of stuff, you know, hidden up in there. Oh, they know all. Yeah. Yeah. They have the best, like, zings stored up because they know their facts. There you go. At pollsters, we'd love to have you on the pod. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. So moving on, uh, this week, uh, we are moving into our segment, What Really Grinds Your Gears, uh, the gear grinding segment, as we like to call it. Uh, And this week, because we are talking to Liz Sedoti, who spent a couple of years in the White House press briefing room, uh, our topic of the week is the White House press briefing. Uh, So who wants to get started here? Justin. Yeah, I can. Um, Wow. No, this is a tough one, but I I think I got something. So... 
there, there's definitely many things that could grind my gears about White House press briefing. Um, but one thing I would say, and Liz will talk about this a bit as well, um, but really is the kind of the the weird degree of access that it gives certain people, certain journalists, certain news outlets, um, and kind of excludes others. So um, it's a very like traditional process. There are certain journalists, well, in previous administrations, this administration is changing some things. In previous administrations, it was like certain news outlets get like the first question, the second question. Some just like don't get called on at all. And of course, as Liz will mention, it's a very, very tiny room. So you can only fit so many people. Um, and actually, we've talked to both Mike Dubke and Jen Psaki, who are both former White House communications directors about this. And they actually both supported the the idea that the Trump administration has tried to do, which is actually Skype in local journalists to the White House press briefing to try and increase access and build that connection between local journalism and the White House, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's actually a really interesting idea. And you like can see sometimes on the White House press briefing, you'll have like somebody pop up on a computer and ask like Sean Spicer or Sarah Sanders like a question. And you're just like, that's really interesting. How do I do that? Um, so uh, my segment for what really grinds my gears about the White House press briefing is and I had to so disclaimer here, I had to watch the White House press briefing almost every day this summer uh, for my internship. And I learned a lot about it. And I think the biggest problem I had with it was the fact that after the first five or six questions, every reporter asks the same question. Mm. Like you hear these same two or three questions towards the end. And you're just like, oh, my God, I need this to end. I just need this to end right now. Or ask a different question, a in, in question independent of something that somebody has already asked or answered. Uh, so that's my biggest problem with the White House press briefing. So I don't know if off camera is the solution to that or maybe just like, uh, like some of those fifth grade teachers that I had was just like, that's a dumb question. Ask something else. Or <laughs> I've already answered that. Maybe that's the answer to this. Um, but yeah, that's what really bothers me about the White House press briefing. Mine is a little bit. Okay. I mean this in like the least partisan way, but my beef with the White House press briefing is that Josh Ernest is no longer up at the podium. And I don't mean this uh, because of him or the policies that he advocated for. I mean this because it means Walker Ernest is no longer walking the halls of the White House. Aww. If you haven't seen Josh Ernest's son, Walker Ernest, it is the cutest thing. I literally have a picture of him up on my laptop. There's this awesome photo on Halloween of him dressed as Bat uh, Superman. And oh, Obama, yeah, and Obama walks in, walks up to him and like starts flexing his muscles. He flexes back at Obama. And it's just like the cutest, like it's so adorable. So that's what I beef with the press briefing is that, you know, I don't I don't think uh, anyone else will have a kid as cute as Walker uh, Ernest. Well, Josh Ernest, if you're listening, uh, we would love to have you on the pod and Walker. Yeah, yeah. Bring Wa Walker. Walker would be a star guest, honestly. <laughs> All right, great. Uh, so we're going to transition into this week's episode. Um, so as Aaron earlier said, we have on Liz Sedoti. Liz is going to come on to talk to us a little about a little bit about her experiences as a journalist covering campaigns. Then she's going to talk to us a little bit about what it's like to be in the White House press briefing room. And then she'll talk to us a little bit about what she calls the swerve, uh, which is her career change into something totally crazy and different. Uh, but she's going to talk to us a little bit about why that's not that crazy of a change. Uh, so stick around, listen in, uh, listen in to Liz Sedoti and uh, Liz, uh, we're going to bring her in. Liz Sedoti, welcome to the podcast. We are excited to have you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Great. So our first question to start off. Uh, so you cut your teeth during 
doing political journalism, right, and covering campaigns. So tell us a little bit about what that was like, uh, how you got your start, who you were covering, just that sort of experience. Sure. Well, it actually goes back to being seven years old and having a paper route. Um, <laughs> it goes then, that far back. Yeah, huh? it really does. I'll try to keep it short. No, um, <laughs> you know, my professional career um, really started right out of college, um, ended up at the Associated Press, spent um, the first few years cutting my teeth, uh, covering state and local politics and national politics from the great state of Ohio, a great battleground state. Um, and then in 2003, came up to Washington uh, for the AP to cover the 2004 presidential campaign. And a funny story is that they, when um, my, my editors at the AP called me up, they said, hey, you're going to come to Washington, but we don't know what you're going to be covering. So just bear <laughs> with us. When you get to Washington, we'll figure it out, you know. So um, our chief political correspondent at the time said, welcome to Washington and welcome to cover the welcome to covering the campaign. Well, back then in Ohio, think about it, in 03, we weren't an early primary state, so there wasn't a campaign. So I was completely dumbfounded. And one of my many times I embarrassed myself, I said, the campaign, right? <laughs> um, so that that first two years was incredible. I mean, 2003, 2004, out on the campaign trail, you know, it was a really romantic time if you were somebody who, since seven years old, wanted to cover not just, you know, the news, but presidential politics. Right. And um, so it was a really heady time and, and went out on the road. And I was out on the road for most of 03 and 04, traveling with candidates in the back of a bus. It sounds... It sounds more romantic than it really is when you get out there <laughs> and you realize that, you know, a lot of your time is spent in the back of a bus um, with no food, no power, no bathrooms, waiting for candidates and following them around. Um, but it was a great experience. So talk to us a little bit about what it was like building relationships with these candidates. And either 04, you also worked the 2008 campaign. I mean, mm -hmm. it seems like it would be a very easy thing to do, I guess. I mean, you're like following them around basically for yeah. kind of their, their trapped, entire life. Trapped there with them. Yeah. So talk to us about how you build relationships with these candidates and, you know, what that was like getting to know people who were, you know, had such high stature in American politics. Yeah. And you kind of just followed around, followed them around all day. Yeah. So, you know, you really start with their people. Um, and the way I did it is it started with getting to know their people and then also reading, doing old school journalism, reading and researching and getting a sense of who they are. By the point they run, most of them have written books or have had ghostwriters write them books. Mm. Um, but you can get a good sense of kind of the um, kind of what makes them tick and their backgrounds. And that's a, that's always a good entree into creating a relationship is knowing something about the person that that you're supposed to be covering. Things have changed a lot back then, um, you know. Look, Twitter wasn't around. Social media wasn't around. Mm. Um, we didn't have – it wasn't very long ago, but there weren't really, you know, network embeds with uh, cameras following candidates around all the time. So you did have more access, and you mm. were able to – you know, John McCain was, was great back then about, you know, being in the back of the bus and having really candid conversations where you could spend more time getting to know them. But politicians are politicians. You're never going to fully get to know them. Right. So um, so that, that times were different back then. Obviously, McCain ran in eight, not in uh, 03, 04. But even over the course of that campaign in eight, he changed. Right. Um, I, no. And I'm not really sure I would say necessarily he changed, but but it, there was less access. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, can it, the campaign staff saying we need to be um, more cautious because, you know, reporters can report on anything now, mm -hmm. whereas before it was different. I mean, um, David Carr, the former New York Times columnist, media columnist, called me 
a couple of years ago um, before he passed, a 35-year-old curmudgeon because I was waxing poetic about days, like decades before me when when reporters really could get to know a candidate. Right. And, and these days, I think that um, they're so cautious and probably rightly so given mm-hmm. the quality of journalism and, and how technology has changed that. So give us a little bit more of a tactical overview. Um, like if you really wanted to find out, you know, John McCain, you know, how he operates, you you really want a good, truthful story out of that. What does that conversation look like? Do you, do you recall ever having conversations with candidates, you know, of just trying to get to know them on a, on a personal level? Yeah, sure. I mean, again, it's I, I do think that it actually starts with observing I think journalists don't observe enough. Mm. Um, you can learn a lot about someone from watching them and watching their body language and 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 also getting to know the people around them. Um, those are so, those are some of my favorite conversations. I mean, in, in um, whether it was like talking to Kevin Madden in the in on the plane and saying, okay, so like when Romney's really at his lake house, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Right. right. And, and, you know, I always love the questions to the candidate that sort of catches them off guard. Um, how did you meet your spouse is always one of my favorite questions for anyone I meet, frankly. Part of it's I'm a hopeless romantic, but the other part of it is that it actually really changes a person. Huh. It, it, you know, people can tend to be guarded. Um, and I'm, I'm also very interested. It's a genuine question, but it also changes a person where all of a sudden when they start talking about the person that they, you know, they're in love with or they love, you know, they let their guard down a little bit. Mm. I really believe that whether it's a presidential candidate or whether it's, you know, their receptionist who's picking up the phone, you treat them in the same way. And that is to be genuinely interested in people and to have genuine conversations um, that gets a kind of allows people to be a bit vulnerable. Um, but part of that is also not playing the gotcha game as a journalist, you know, really trying to understand kind of what happened, why does it matter, and why, and what's the context around it. And I think that if you, you approach it in that way, you just get deeper, richer information. That said, the world isn't like that these days. I mean, I think that uh, consumers really want um, what I used to call tidbit journalism. They want bits of information because they're so inundated. And I think that puts a lot of pressure on journalists um, to give the consumer what they want rather than stepping back and, and trying to get a fuller picture of what's going on and who people are. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's something we hear about a lot about on this podcast is that, you know, that tension in journalism between, you know, long form deep dive stories about, you know, not just the past, but, you know, really getting a big capture about what's going on versus, you know, 140 character journalism. You're listening to the flagship geopolitics podcast, Fly on the Wall, and we'll be right back. This week's political fun fact comes to you from President Richard Nixon. I think this is the second time we've had him as a political fun fact. See, my, my comment would be, it seems like they're all presidents. I feel like we can move away from the president uh, trivia model. So, yes, I agree. But there's also the most information about presidents. It's true. So, um, but actually, this goes back to pre-President Nixon days. Okay. Ooh. So, it's a little different. So, spare with me here. Um, so, President Richard Nixon, uh, when he was in the Navy... Uh, was actually a big poker player. He played poker with all of his Navy buddies like all of the time. 
Uh, and basically, uh, he won a ton of money as a poker player. Like, I'm sure that all of his midshipman friends hated him in the Navy. Uh, and he just took a bunch of their money. Um, I don't know if they were playing for big, big money. But um, he won so much money from his time in the Navy that he actually funded most of his first congressional campaign off of his poker money. So would you say? Oh, no. Oh, no. Richard Dixon on a boat in the Navy was a card shark wow go home. oh go on give it to me come go on come home. on wow he was just kidding because sharks live in the ocean oh that's really i forgot about that boat. oh come on i thought I it was good i can't believe i can't believe you just said that on this podcast i'm sorry to listen to that So pivoting a little bit, uh, so after the 2008 campaign, you worked at AP as the chief correspondent, Mm -hmm. um, and you worked in the White House briefing room quite a bit. So talk to us about what that's like. I mean, we see the White House briefing room on CNN, you know, every day now, um, and it, I feel like we get an image of it, but talk to us about what it's like to actually work inside there. Yeah, so it's, so it's funny, it's, it is very romanticized in every movie you've ever seen, right? <laughs> um, and even in the day-to-day, I think, mm-hmm. with, with Sean Spicer at, at the front of it, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about how this year it's been more reality show than anything else. And, you know, I think there's an element of truth to that, but I think it's always been that way. I think there is a, um, there used to be a purpose, a very significant purpose, where you used to find out information from the administration and I think over the course of the last decade or so, maybe even longer, it's changed a bit where you all you go in and you sort of understand the role you play. You know, we were the AP and historically the AP had a seat at the front of the room and asked the first question that that has been, um, you know, the tradition for a very, very long time. And, and why is that? Yeah. I'm just tr- tr- curious to understand like the history there, the context. Yeah, so the the AP is really was really the original wire service when it, most people don't know this, but it was, it's a news cooperative. So, you know, a bunch of um, New York-based newspapers got together and um, decided to all pay part of the salary of and create a news cooperative called mm. the AP. And instead of sending one or three different reporters to cover a war they would send one and then share that copy okay so the ap became a news cooperative wire service and because the ap was representing more than one company there was an agreement to ask ask Mm -hmm. the first question interesting yeah yeah so so um so the ap always had the first question first chair um but but let's just talk about the physical nature of the White House yeah. briefing room. It is tiny. Okay. Yeah. Paint us a picture I mean, of that room. Yeah. It is. It is very, very small. And I, I got to think about it. Maybe in the last five to ten years, there was a um, revamp of it, where the new carpet, that kind of stuff. Before that, and it was, you know, soda was spilled everywhere, mm. and you know, tiny. I used to laugh because the AP's closet, and it truly was a closet where you had three and four <laughs> people, you know fit in together, um, sort of looked a little bit like a college newspaper, mm. you know, <laughs> college <laughs> newspaper um, offices and stuff. Mm. And things have changed a bit. It's a little more roomy, a little more economical in terms of space, but it's cramped. What's amazing about it, though, as a young journalist, for me, I was, I remember sitting next to Helen Thomas. I mean, like, mm. 
she was my she was my idol for many many years when when I was a kid. Um, and you never know who you're going to run into, and that's that's another really um, fun thing, um, you know. And you often have to pinch yourself and go like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm actually working in the you know working from yeah. the White House. Um, then of course there's the perk of you know bringing in family members and putting them behind the podium, and they can get the you know, ubiquitous shot that everyone wants mm-hmm. of, you know, being right. in the White House briefing room. But but it's different. I think um, one of the things I miss is the collegial nature among the White House press corps. Um, it, it's this interesting mix of competitiveness, but also a lot of collegiality. And a lot of us were very, very good friends. So um, great experience. Um, you know, so grateful and blessed that I was able to have it. Um, I'm very glad I'm not there these days. <laughs> <laughs> probably, you burn out probably pretty quickly in yeah, that sort of environment. Yeah, I, I really, um, I empathize with my my colleagues who are still in journals and still covering the White House because it didn't stop back when I was covering it, but it really doesn't stop now. I, mm-hmm. I see, I often see um, Facebook posts of uh, journalists who are now covering the Trump administration saying, I really miss my family and friends. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um um, it was hard back then for me, and we didn't have the pressures that this this group of journalists are facing now. Right. So talk to us a little bit about, uh, you alluded to this, that AP got the first question. But talk to us about how people get asked questions in the White House briefing room. I mean, it seems like on television that it's the person who has, you know, the hand the highest and is <laughs> screaming towards the press sec. You know, how does that actually work? Yeah, so often, um, often the administration has a plan. Okay. Um, when the press secretary walks out and, and know, they know what their big story of the day is and they know, they know the messages they want to put out there. So that's why you'll see um, press secretaries come out and give a, um, you know, give a two or three minute here, you know, here's, here's the story of the day or here's, here's the update, you know, for today. Um, and then the selection is usually based on who's there. There's an element of whose turn it is and, and, who do we know will ask, or who do we sense will ask a question that we want to drive today's news? Um, you know, I confess, I don't know how it's done today. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but, you know, from a communications perspective, if I jump to my current, you know, j- this side of the aisle, um, you do have to consider sort of, you know, what's my message and, and what do I want to drive and which reporter out there do I think is going to ask, um, ask a question that's going to help me drive my message? I also think this goes back to the relationship conversation. Um, you know, when I was out there, operatives knew, campaign operatives knew who among those who were covering a specific candidate was going to ask the gotcha question versus the, um, the you know, real deep policy, economic, immigration, those those kind of harder questions that we're, we're going to listen more thoughtful answer. Uh, so tell us a little bit about just the balance of information you receive in this typical briefing room. So we know like typically the last few years that the briefings have been on camera and there's just the press secretary up at the podium answering questions and, and reading out the day's news. Uh, but how much of that do you incorporate in a story versus how much goes on behind the scenes, off camera, in conversations yeah. with deputy press secs and other and other sources in the White House. Give us a, a sense of that balance. Yeah, so it sort of depends. I mean, it is, 
it's rare that a news story will come out of just the press briefing, right? Or one story will come out of press briefing. So the dirty little secret, if you're the AP, is there are actually um, several people behind the scenes in what's called the White House booth that um, is taking notes. So if the press secretary is up there at the podium and, and you know the chief White House correspondent is sitting in the front row for the AP asking questions, there's people behind the scenes who are taking notes and updating stories that may already be out on the wire um, or filing news alerts if there's big information. You know, let's say it's the day where you know, you've got North Korea, the travel ban, and hurricanes, right? That's a lot of information that's going mm-hmm. to come out of that that um, that one briefing. Um, you know, slow news day, not a lot of information <laughs> is going to come out, right? Um, but the other thing that those briefings do is they provide what, what we called fodder for, you know, stories down the road, right? So typical reporter may be gathering string. I'm using a lot of jargon here for a reason. Gathering string for, you know any number of stories and, and may pluck quotes or pluck context from anything, um, you know, Sarah Sanders says, says today, um, and they plug it into different files for use at a later time. Um, so it could be one story, it could be a bazillion stories all happening at once, or you could be saving information um, to write stories later in the week, later in the month, later in the year. That makes sense. So- so, I mean, you talked a little bit about those big news days. Um, talk to us about, you know, just a, a historic moment in the White House briefing room for you, like a day where you walked in and you knew your job was, you know, that much more important that you get answers from, uh, you know, the White House press secretary, where you walked in and you said, this is a day that people are going to remember. So it's actually funny. I had a lot of those days and, okay. I, and, and um, they all sort of run together. I mean, I wasn't one who... I was always pulled in 85 different directions, as any any of the reporters who work in the White House are. Um, so there's not really a specific day in the White House briefing room that stands out or on the campaign trail or that kind of thing. But there are moments of um, moments of times when you you really step back and you go, wow, I've been in the bubble for a really long time. And the one that the one that. Um, really steps out to me or stands out to me was actually in 04. So it wasn't a White House situation. Mm-hmm. It was more of a campaign trail situation. And with June of 04, and I remember that um, um, President Reagan had died. And I came from a very patriotic family, very middle-of-the-road family, ideologically very patriotic. And and um, I remember I was on the campaign trail with John Kerry. And I was in California. His um, He was there for a personal... Uh, personal stop. His daughter was graduating from film school or something. And I remember my mom calling me as she watched um, Reagan's casket being put put um, in Washington and people going up and paying their respects. And she called and said, said, are you, so are you going to get a chance to pay your respects? You know? And I said, no, mom, I'm in California with John Kerry. <laughs> and she's like, she's like, oh, right. I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> and it didn't even dawn on me until a couple days later that, um, I did, in fact, a day later, literally stand in the same room of where John Kerry was paying his respects at Simi Valley, California, to Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was so focused on, okay, you know, what are his movements, the candidates, what are Kerry's movements, what's he saying, what does the room look like, that it didn't even dawn on me that that I did 
get the opportunity to pay my respects, I guess, in my own way. Mm. Um, but that sort of gives you a sense of kind of the bubble that you're in, whether you're covering the White House, whether you're on the campaign trail. Um, the days really, really tend to run together. Um, and so it's it's a difficult question. I do call it the black hole. I'm like, I feel like I lost years, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and it was an incredible moment every day because I got to witness history. But to say that there was one, you know, one clear moment that stands out in, in that whole 15 year career covering journalism, I've got a lot of different moments, mm-hmm. um, but many of those days run together. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. Our Politico's Ezreal people this week comes to us from CNN reporter Manu Raju. He's the congressional uh, correspondent for CNN. He's great. Yeah, he really is. Uh, And he gave uh, a random anecdote of the day. This is via Twitter. A senator told me earlier that he had a dream that we were surfing together, which I just think (laughs) is really funny. Um, And then, of course, a bunch of senators got in on the on the show and Senator Brian Schatz added a bunch of people um, that Cory Booker, John Testeralls, I believe. Did you not name the senator in the? He didn't, and no. it could have been. It could have been. Uh, it's got to be Brian Schott. That's Brian what Schott. I'm saying. And he was the first to respond. I think he was. He was waiting for it. But no, Manu never, never outed the senator. Never that's gave it. up the source. That's good uh, journalism, right there. Yeah, mm. it's got to be Brian Schott, though. Switching gears a little bit now to more of your work today. Uh, so you are uh, head of communications at BP. So first, we sort of want to know what it's like to pivot careers. So uh, at least for us, what appears to be so drastically, right, going from journalism to now private sector uh, um, corporation uh, communications uh, appears very different. So tell us a little bit about, you know, why you did that, how you did that. So that so. I too struggled with understanding, <laughs> with understanding how the skill set the skill set from being a journalist translated into the other side. I mean, one of the things I like to say is I made widgets every day, right? Every day, I walked in and I either wrote stories, or I edited stories, or I planned kind of what those stories would, what our calendar of stories would look like, and and so every day I knew where I was adding value. Um, and I had something to show for it at the end of ever end of every day. And making that transition to corporate communications was a big leap of faith. I had a lot of people around me. You know, we talked a little bit about how do you build relationships. I built a lot of relationships over the years with political professionals, um, campaign strategists, former government people, current government people, who um, who all said, "No, trust me, you, you can do this. Like, you can make that jump." Um, and at the end of the day, um, a lot of it came down on, you know, having faith in myself to make that jump and being confident that once I made the jump, I can, I can swim. Um, but the skills really are the same in many, many ways. You know, as a, as a journalist, you have to create networks of people, sources, create relationships, um, 
figure out what the story is from among a bunch of different people who don't want you to really know, mm-hmm. right? Um, you have to figure out how to communicate the big story of the day to your audience. Same, same skill set. You know, in my case, my audience was the American people, right? It was a general electorate audience um, as a reporter where I had to take really complex information and understand what was happening, then fit the pieces together and write about what was happening, uh, what the relevant context was, and why it mattered. Same skills on the inside of, of corporate communications. The difference is that you are uh, advocating on behalf of a company or a candidate or what have you, um, rather than being um, an independent objective observer, um, which is really what, you know, particularly at the Swiss Press, that's what we were. Um, that's how the skills trans- or the skill set translates, but it was a big leap of faith. Um, it wasn't clear. If you would have told me five years ago that I'd be where I am, I would have sort of laughed at you and said, there's what? There's no way, <laughs> right? Because I did think I'd be a journalist for the rest of my career, but at some point, um, you know, I wanted more balance in my life. And I had also had been blessed to see and report on so many different um, electoral cycles that I really did feel like um, I had seen, you know, the same movie over and over again. And I was just hungry for something different. So, different so, challenge. Yeah, a very different challenge, at least it seems to us. But I think you shed a good light on, you know, the skill sets that actually really come into play um, aren't too, too different. Um, so talk to us a little bit about uh, what your actual day-to-day job is like. I mean, I feel like we hear head of U.S. communications and it's like, oh, you know, um, you shape the message of BP. But like, what is, what do you, you step into the office that day? What does your day look like? So much like journalism, you never really know what the day is going to entail. I mean, the pace is different. You know, people had said to me, you're going to be bored. And, you know, the pace is not people on the inside, right? Mm-hmm. People on the outside, you know, people think that, I think um, that, corporate communications is boring and and it really isn't. I mean, there's always a lot to do, particularly at a company like BP that um, when I joined um, was still only a couple years away from a big reputational challenge with the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. You know, the company needed to figure out how to recover, recover from that and communications was a big part of it. Um, so there's always something going on. You know, U.S. head of communication means that Yes, crafting messaging, Mm -hmm. but also um, thinking through in a strategic way, not just what what should the messages be, but working closely with the business to understand what the business strategy is. And so so you have to understand the business. You have to, you know, create networks in in house of, um, you know, folks in the business, you know, your executives on down, you know, to people who are on the front lines of the business drilling every day. Right. Mm. so, you know, my day can be anything from, you know, creating a relationship with a new reporter to um, signing off on a new slate of advertisements that we're doing. We've been focusing on safety this year um, to just today, for example, um, doing final sign offs on our economic impact report, um, which is what I've been doing while while here in the office <laughs> um, to you know, thinking about staffing changes. Um, I have a big team Mm -hmm. to handling budgets, right? I mean, part of this, there's, there's a part of this that's, uh, the higher up the food chain you get, the more 
administrative duties mm-hmm, you right. have to do. Yeah. So there's that piece of it. But um, to talking about, you know, how do we freshen our website or do we um, look at a new way of tracking um, clips or, you know, social media mentions or mm-hmm. newspaper mentions of VPs? Right. Uh, so obviously, and this is sort of the topic of your discussion group, so we want to dive into it a little bit here, but obviously corporations aren't immune to politics because sometimes politics will just hit you in the face and you just have to react. Uh, and we were talking about this a little bit before, but tell us a little bit about how you managed, uh, the crisis uh, after Hurricane Harvey, right? Because I know that hit, mm-hmm. um, BP well, uh, headquarters, uh, pretty hard. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about when you're confronted with, um, you know, a, a human issue, a political issue, you know, an economic issue. Uh, how BP goes about responding to that and making sure that all the stakeholders uh, are are receiving the same message and, and everyone's getting the help they need. Yeah, it's a great question um, and highly relevant given that it was only a few weeks ago. Right. So in, in the case of Hurricane Harvey, we as a company were prepared for um, our base of operations in the U.S. Is, is Houston. We were prepared for a lot of our employees to be affected by it, but I think nobody could have been prepared for just how um, difficult it was for us as a company. Mm-hmm. The remarkable thing was that our U.S. headquarters was swamped, completely swamped, and it looked mm-hmm. like um, it looked like the streets of Venice, wow. <laughs> where um, there were rescue boats that at one point were going up and down our campus because the water was so deep. Um, we had buildings that were severely impacted, and you know we have about five thousand employees who who work out of that, those buildings. Um, we had a couple hundred who lost their homes um, during the flooding. And so the communication challenges were really great because on, on one hand, um, it was highly internal. Um, we had to figure out how to communicate with our employees, many of whom weren't on email mm-hmm. or were preserving power on their phones um, because they didn't have a wall to plug them, plug the power back into or plug it into and get more power. Um, so how do you communicate with them and make sure they're getting what they need? Um, that was a challenge. The other challenge was uh, came later, which was external. How do we communicate externally um, what our kind of crisis or key messages at that time were? And then how do you evolve that once the immediate crisis passes? We have a remarkable external story and internal story. Even though our U.S. headquarters was swamped, our um, our operations were minimally impacted. So we had contingencies in place, and that's that's a that's a fantastic external story for us. Right. I mean, I mean, we weren't we don't have refineries along the Gulf Coast, um, and we were able to have our contingencies in place so that operations could continue. Our trading floor. Um, um, had temporarily relocated all of our most of our employees to Dallas so that they could operate from there. So it was a it was a great story, but had several ebbs. Right? I mean, the mm-hmm. first our first and foremost um, priority, not just from a communications perspective, but from a uh, company perspective, was the health and safety of our employees and the well being of our employees, and sure. making sure that we got them what they needed. But giving them that information did prove difficult. And we, you know, we used text messaging. We did use email. We used a lot of word of mouth to get the message out about how they find help. And then as we moved on, the the spirit and the volunteerism was an incredible story for us also. Um, outpouring of support among a lot of BP colleagues um, to make sure that people got what they needed. 
That is a great story. And I think, you know, in the aftermath of something like that, you know, it, it often goes unnoticed about, you know, how much work it goes into to coordinating that large of an effort for your company, for all companies, for the city as a whole. So I think it's great perspective there that you're offering about, you know, how different actors in a, in a society like uh, like Houston. Not only not only in the short term, but in the long term. Right. Too. Uh, I mean, it seems like you guys had planning well in advance for this. Right. And I think that's a really interesting thing that I don't think we think about very often. Right. Well, and there's parts that nobody sees. Right. We do a ton of crisis communication preparedness. I mean, part of that is one well, crisis response. So beyond just the comms piece of it, mm-hmm. you know, how, how does BP or any any company respond to a crisis? We do a lot of multi-jurisdictional um, crisis response training drills every year. Um and that makes us able to go in with a cool head and say, okay, what's our, what's our urgent issue and how, and how do we respond? And there are protocols for us to do that. Yeah, makes sense. All right, we'll transition uh, into our final segment that we'll have with you and it's super quick. Uh, so we'll be able to uh, wrap up soon, but we are gonna ask you some lightning round questions. Oh. Uh, so we have three questions for you. So first thing off the top of your head, uh, just give us a quick answer. Uh, so the first is, what was the best question you ever asked at a White House briefing? Why? Hmm. <laughs> I like that one. That's a question we ask here all the time. Why, why and how? Yeah, sometimes the, the easiest questions, the most obvious questions, those are my favorite. I made a 15-year career asking the obvious question, right? Mm-hmm. Why or how so? Mm-hmm. Okay. And another one, how so? Love it. Makes sense, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use those on a Christian. Uh-huh. I hope not. Uh-huh. <laughs> so what was the scariest part of switching careers? Oh, man. That, that, man, you guys are getting deep. Um. <laughs> You know, I think I think the scariest part was, you know, I guess probably the subject matter. Okay. Right. So, I mean, I'm I'm mostly a generalist. I like to say I, I know um, an o- about an inch deep and an ocean wide of stuff. As a political reporter, you're you tend to be a generalist. You tend to have to dip into different issues and and understand them quickly. And I, I couldn't have told you anything. <laughs> about uh, hydraulic fracturing or <laughs> <laughs> offshore drilling or, you know, the, the fuel value chain until there. And so I think the scariest part was like, how am I going to bone up on, the, on these issues? Mm. Yeah. And those words meant nothing to me. So. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. <laughs> uh, and final question, do you miss anything about being a journalist? Um, yeah, you know, there are moments. I, I miss um, some of the incredible friends that I don't, see nearly enough um and i and i also there are times when i miss that ability to pick up the phone and call anybody you know it's an incredible calling card to be a journalist you get to talk to anyone who's willing to talk to you right i mean my favorite um david green from npr is is lives this every day he has an interest and he picks up the phone and he calls somebody um and explores that a bit and and I um, I I do miss that a bit. Um, I of course would be picking up the phone, calling you know, calling the best winemaker in America, <laughs> and, and those kind of things. But but yeah, I mean that's something hard to get over. Is, is that calling card is gone? Definitely. Wow. Well said. Um, well, uh, I think that's about it for this podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. I think we learned quite a bit about you know a ton of different careers that you've had, and you know the intersection of a lot of these really. Uh, at the forefront of you as a person. So I think that's a really interesting thing to learn about. Yeah, I think some interesting things that came out of this uh, were politicians um, 
are they real people at any point? Are they <laughs> are they always going to be politicians? I think that's a question that we ask ourselves on this podcast frequently. Uh, is how do we humanize these figures um, who are so desperate not to be uh, as humanized as uh, we would have liked? So I think that was an interesting uh, thread that came out of this conversation. Got it. Well, thank you guys for having me. I of really enjoyed it. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to another fantastic episode of Fly on the Wall, this one featuring Liz Sidoti, a geopolitics fellow this semester, and a really great guest to have on uh, to share some experiences that aren't necessarily directly involved in the day-to-day politics. Yeah, okay, if you guys want to get a little bit more about Liz this semester, uh, she actually has discussion groups on Tuesday from 4 to 5.30 in the GU Politics office. What day of the week was that, Christian? Uh, Tuesday. Tuesday. Uh, (laughs) Not Wednesday. Not Wednesday. Uh... For context for our listeners, Christian, as a, a member of the student advisory board, like is like a big brother mentor figure for Liz Sidoti's student strategy team, which means he has to go to her discussion groups every week. I do. And, and the problem was the first week uh, I went on Wednesday. Oh, so don't be Christian. Go on Tuesday. They are on Tuesday. Yeah. And stop by her office hours as well. You can find them uh, online politics at georgetown.georgetown.edu. Um, she'd be happy to talk more about her experience um, in all of her different uh, political and non-political uh, career paths, um, how she got there, and you know, tell some of the stories that we heard in the pod. Yeah, so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, as always, follow us on all the social media things at Fly on the Wall Pod. You should know them by now. You're all millennials anyway. Um, and also subscribe to our MailChimp and subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, We are going to be doing a lot of cool things this semester, and we're really just getting started with this podcast. So tune in, listen to us, uh, and also tweet at us if you ever want to join the conversation. Yeah, give us some feedback. And we're not kidding. Like, we have some really cool stuff coming up, like, in about a week or so. We will be, like, really excited for some cool stuff that may or may not be coming up. Like, I don't want to give too much away. Um, Could you tell us? You, mm, <laughs> yes, we'll talk offline. Uh, but yeah, like we we are we're excited. We think this is gonna be a good season, and uh, you won't want to miss anything. The coolest stuff, guys. It's the gonna be fun. Coolest, some could say. <laughs> is that a hint at? No, it's a Drake and Josh reference. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> respect for all early uh, early two thousand kids. Anyway, all right. Sick. Well, have a great week. Hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, stay in touch and join us next Sunday. Do you guys think Senator Schatz would, like, teach us how to surf? You're from Southern California. Do you not know how to surf already, Christian? Yeah, it's like a side failure in my life. Like, I do not really want to talk about it on this podcast. Okay, if you had to name the best, like, California beach to surf at, what would it be? And how close is it to you? Uh, I'd say it's, like, 40 minutes away. I mean, like, if you're really going to go surfing, you should go to, like, Laguna malibu area that's respectful because like if it was like the if it was like right next door to you and you never learned how to surf i'd judge you a little bit yeah i mean you need to go like 15 20 minutes from my house to like actually get to a surf spot but at senator shots we're happy to come to hawaii california you know whatever you consider the best surf beach will be there okay senator shots if you're listening it's pretty simple fly on the surfboard it'd be a cool episode we could do it like right on the beach be really fun such a fantastic promo right like we could do we could take such cool pictures in hawaii so if anyone in Senator Schatz's office is listening, we can shred some waves, bro. Oh, wow. <laughs> he tried. Sounds gnarly. Am I getting that right, Senator? Email us. <laughs> Fly on the wall podcast at gmail.com. At gmail.com.